evening. Good evening. Good evening. I'm sorry no one came out to this event tonight. You know, I will tell you in all honesty, and this is the end of the ninth year of this series, and we have done these in many, many venues, as you know, those of you who have followed this. And for what it's worth, if it's any consolation, this is actually the largest venue we have. Um, now, I will tell you that we have a few, a few seats here in the front, the very front row. We also are simulcasting this, if that's the right word, in the Learning Center, which is on this level. Um, if you go back, if you, if you would like to try that, you're welcome to stay in here, but if you'd like to try that, you would go through the narthex in that direction, and I'm hoping someone who is in the Learning Center right now is going to give me a thumbs up that the audio actually is working. Um, John Altoff, is it good? It is? Okay. So if you go to that room, you will see a video screen, and you will actually hear what is being said, which is nice. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon, and on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series, it is my profound privilege uh, and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Yes, Cindy. You don't, there is no sound in the uh, Learning Center. We'll figure that out. We're, we're working on some technical issues. Hopefully there will be sound in there before too long. Where was I? I'm really, in all seriousness, I'm glad you're here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming out tonight. This is, I think, without question, the largest uh, turnout we have had in the nine years of this series. I'm thrilled you're here. Just a word about the flow for the evening. Uh, we will hear from our speaker for about 45 or 50 minutes. I'll have a few comments of thanks, and then we will, God willing, have 15 or 20 minutes of Q&A. So be thinking about what you would like to ask him while you are listening to his presentation. If you have followed the Faith and Life Lecture Series for the last nine years, you know that we have intentionally cast a broad net in terms of the types of speakers and topics we have brought. We've done everything from faith and humor to faith and comic books to faith and lifelong learning and faith and forgiveness. And tonight's speaker, in a way, is a one-man example of the kind of eclectic nature of this series. If you know his work at all, you know that he has uh, done many, many things. He's known as a humorist, as an essayist, as a commentator. He has written children's stories. He has helped with the Veggie Tale uh, series. Some of you may know this, although he did not, in fact, write The Pirates Do Don't Do Anything. I learned that today. <laughs> if you'd like to sing that, we can now. I'm guessing many of us know that. And he, is, he has become, I think he would call himself, an accidental biographer. And he is probably today best known for his biographies of William Wilberforce and, of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Without further ado, we are thrilled tonight to welcome Mr. Eric Metaxas. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Unbelievable. Now this is the question. Is this on? Is this on? It is on. You're applauding so loudly you confused me. I am overwhelmed. God bless you for showing up. I just cannot believe there's so many people here. Whenever there's a huge crowd, I think, I wish my wife were here to see this. 
And, uh, and I always have to ask, because she's going to want to know how many people are here. So if you bear with me, if you're here tonight, would you just mind raising your hand quickly? And I would just get a quick, that's, okay. My Lord, God bless you for, I really, I am so overwhelmed by this. Thank you, Tim, uh, for, for putting on this great series. I do something similar to this in New York City, uh, but we don't get this many people. Uh, honestly, this is tremendous. Can the folks out there hear me? Okay, wow. Um, so much I want to say, and we've only got the four or five minutes. Is that right, Tim? Where'd he go? Uh, I don't know, did I, did I bring a clock? No, I got my iPhone, so I'm just expecting one quick call, and I don't want to. Um, well, my name is, in fact, Eric Metaxas. It's my privilege uh, to be here in Minnesota. Can I say that? Did I say that right? And uh, I, uh, I guess I want to tell you um, a little bit about myself, how I came to write the Bonhoeffer book, and then I want to leap into the story of Bonhoeffer, and then we'll have time uh, for some, some Q&A. Um, okay, about me. Uh, I was born in New York City, where I live now with my wife and daughter. Uh, my parents are European immigrants. They came uh, over in the 50s. They met in an English class uh, in Manhattan, not far from where I live. Um, I always like to say that my dad is Greek, hence my surname Metaxas. My mom is German, hence my deep love for Siegfried and Roy. And thank you, thank you, you've been a great audience. Good night. Um, but it's true, and I always say that if you're raised Greek and German, you're really raised Greek. That's the bottom line. You're raised, you're raised Greek. Uh, it's like rock, paper, scissors. Greek wins. And, uh, and so I grew up, I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, altar boy in the Greek Orthodox Church, grew up in Danbury, Connecticut mostly, and, um, but my experience of church life was mostly a cultural experience, and I think that's probably true for a number of people in this room. Uh, it was mainly for me a cultural experience, a good cultural experience, but I never really heard the gospel of Jesus, I never learned about the Bible or whatever, it was, it was mainly about being Greek, uh, I think. You know, if you're part of the Greek Orthodox Church, it's kind of the Greek Orthodox Church, and uh, as I say, it was a good experience, but by the time I went to Yale University, which is where I did go, um, I was unprepared for the sort of aggressive secularism that I encountered there, and I realized that I really didn't know so much about my faith. I didn't even know if I believed any of it or if I, how seriously I took it, and fairly quickly uh, it evaporated. I think that I uh, drank the, the Kool-Aid and, um, or I don't know, inhaled the zeitgeist, I don't know, inhaled the zeitgeist or something like that. Uh, I did inhale, and um, <laughs> by the time, yeah, and probably so did he. Uh, but uh, I, I have to say that by the time I got out of Yale, um, I had lost whatever little Christian faith that I had gone there with. So I always say that if you have to go to Yale, do not go with an open mind. That's, that was my mistake. Uh, so I, I graduated just absolutely sure that the meaning of life is that you don't ask that question and life probably doesn't have meaning in the capital M sense and there's no such thing as capital T truth and people who believe that are crazy or, you know, um, live in the middle of the country, certainly not in uh, New Haven and New York. Uh, so I... Uh, I was not happy about this, however. I always say that, you know, if you're going to believe that life has no meaning, it's okay to have like a really good job to distract yourself for a few decades and then it'll all be over. But um, I wanted to be a writer. I did not get a good job. I spent a lot of time floundering and, uh, and then drifting. 
uh, and then I, I drifted and floundered together. Have you ever done that? Don't, don't do that. And uh, if, if you drift and flounder uh, long enough, you end up moving back in with your parents. That's really the, that's what happens. I can, it's almost like math, it's, it happens. And um, so I did move back in with my parents, and as I said, my parents are European immigrants, sort of, you know, working class, good people who do not have any patience for the Yale graduate who seems to be finding himself. Uh, you know, their attitude is you should find yourself a job and, uh, and get on with it. They didn't get to go to college, so they really had no patience for, for my uh, angst. And uh, I guess, you know, in retrospect, they were quite right. And so I ended up getting a job um, as a proofreader at Union Carbide in Danbury, Connecticut. The Hebrew word would be Gehenna. And, uh, oh, very biblically literate crowd. Congratulations, Pastor Tim. You've done a good job here. And, um, and so I, uh, I really uh, and truly was miserable uh, at that time. It was, it was just tough. As I say, living with my parents, being in a job just to make a buck, you know, to proofread manuals of text and just the kind of stuff that I was not, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, follow in the footsteps of Faulkner, not some, you know, computer code or whatever it was that I was doing. It was just very depressing and uh, mechanistic environment. I, I was about a quarter of a mile from the nearest window, and it was really an unhealthy, unpleasant corporate environment for which life had not prepared me. Um, but in that um, unpleasant environment, I met a guy who began talking to me about God, and as I say, I had pretty much pushed that away. I was sure that people who take that very seriously are, you know, insane. And, uh, but I was in enough pain, frankly, to be open-minded. And pain can make you open-minded to solutions. And so I would, you know, engage him in, in some conversations. And I was fascinated at how much he knew about the Bible. And, and I was actually stunned at how little I knew uh, and how I'd rejected something about which I knew so little. But I still wasn't swallowing it. But you know, tell me more, but don't get too close, but tell me more, but, you know, keep your distance. Um, I always say that, uh, you know, he was an Episcopalian, so I figured it was safe because they don't really believe that stuff anyway. You know what I'm talking about? You know, is it? So, but I was quite wrong. He believed all that stuff. And so we talked, and, and, and it was, this went on for months during my, my year of, of pain and, and, and searching. And one night, um, I... I guess I began inching my way toward the idea that maybe there's something to this, but I was clearly far from accepting that idea. It was just unpleasant to me. But um, one night I had a dream. I won't tell the story of that, but um, the, the, there's a video on my website. It's an amazing story. We don't have time. It'll, it would take too long. I told it this morning. But um, it's an amazing dream where God basically revealed himself to me. And I'll just tease that and say, go to ericmetaxas.com. Actually, if you go in the next three days, you get a free cup of soup. Uh, that's not, it's, it's internet soup, though. It's not that good. But uh, the... Uh, I don't know what that means. And, um, but, but the fact is that there is, there is a video there. It's an amazing story. And I effectively went to sleep hoping that might be true about God, but sure that it wasn't, or sure that you certainly couldn't know whether it was true. And I woke up absolutely convinced that the Bible is true and Jesus is Lord. All that insane stuff that those crazy born-again Christians that I've been trying to avoid at Yale believed, unfortunately now I believed, and you know, you're sort of stuck with that. And so uh, it changed everything. And for the first time in my life, I... I could say, okay, God, lead me uh, in my writing career. I haven't done such a great job. Uh, I'm a proofreader at Union Carbide, but you already knew that. You're God. And uh, maybe, you could, maybe you could take a crack at it for a while. And, uh, and rather quickly, I got a job um, 
This is also a miraculous story, which I won't tell now, but I, I genuinely miraculously got handed a job. I mean, this story is itself nuts. As uh, the head writer for something called Rabbit Ears Productions. Some of you know Rabbit Ears Radio. I know Minnesota Public Radio carried that for a long time. And um, it was an amazing job. And so I went on to have this career writing all these children's books. Um, after a while, I worked for, I, I wrote some humor for the New York Times. I, I uh, uh, went to work also for Veggie Tales, which I, I believe we've mentioned. And of course, that's the most important thing anyone could ever do. Uh, I was the voice of the narrator on the Esther video. And to this day, I am still the voice of the narrator on the Esther video. <laughs> yeah, think about that. And um, uh, I, wrote, I wrote the Hamlet omelet parody for the Lyle the Kindly Viking video. I, I know, that's the most important thing I've ever done. But uh, strange career, never expected to write children's books. I then wrote a book um, called Everything Always Wants to Know About God But We're Afraid to Ask, uh, which sort of a Q&A about the big questions of God, because I'd figured if I had had a book like this growing up, it could have saved me a lot of grief, frankly, uh, and some work as a proofreader, which <laughs> is, is grief. And uh, I, um, so I wrote that book, and the reason I'm telling you all this is because I found myself, oddly enough, on CNN talking about this book. Now, that's odd, because if you watch CNN, you may notice they don't have Christian apologists on there all that often. <laughs> Maybe I'm just watching it on the wrong days. Uh, but um, I found myself on there and I'm expecting a tough question. This is Ted Turner's network. He, of course, knows Christianity is really stupid. So uh, I'm expecting a really tough question. But instead, I get this softball question. Oh, Eric, there's something in your book here about Wilberforce. Can you tell me about that? So I found myself suddenly on national TV talking about William Wilberforce. I just had a tiny paragraph in the book where I say that Wilberforce is a guy who, uh, you know, believed the Bible and took the Bible seriously and henceforth... Uh, or, or because of this, I should say, changed the world for good. So I'm talking about Wilberforce on national TV, which leads to a publisher contacting me and saying, would you like to write a biography of Wilberforce? Now, I'd never had an ambition in my life to write a biography, but he said, there's this movie coming out. Uh, we need to, you know, somebody's going to want to know more about Wilberforce. Would you like to write a biography? And um, I, I just was flabbergasted because I just never had that ambition in my life. I always say I'm far too self-centered to want to spend several years thinking about some other person. Uh, and um, there's some truth to that, alas. But I felt that I should write this book. He was such a great figure and inspiring. So I wrote the biography of Wilberforce. And people inevitably, when I would go speak about Wilberforce, would say, who will you write about next? Who will you write about next? Some people would say, about whom will you next write? You see? Yes, I am an evangelist for the word whom. Uh, as a Yale English major, I want to recommend it to you. It, you can get it free now on your iPhone. There's an app you can get, and you can, you can use it all you want. You don't have to pay for it. Like in our day, I, I had to pay. But, uh, but anyway, Eric, about whom will you next write? If you hear that question enough, you begin thinking, well, maybe if I were to write a second biography, who would it be about? I don't know. But um, I remembered that the summer I came to faith, that miserable uh, summer of 88, which turned into a glorious summer of 88 where I accepted God into my life. I remember the man who had led me to faith, who'd been holding my hand through this journey, gave me a copy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. I'll never forget, my friend said to me, oh, have you, have you heard of Bonhoeffer? And I said, no, I've never heard. Who's Bonhoeffer? And he says, oh, Bonhoeffer's a German pastor who got involved in the plot to kill Hitler because of his faith in Jesus, stood up for the Jews of Europe, 
and was killed in a concentration camp by the Nazis. And I remember hearing this story and thinking, what? How come I've never heard this story before? I was scandalized. I'm always scandalized when I hear something like that. And I think everyone should know this. And I've never heard this before. I went to Yale University. You, you're kidding. I've never heard this before. Yes, he tells me about it. So I was really captivated. So all these years later, people say about whom will you next write? Finally, I thought, yes. I think if I were to write a second biography, it would be about Bonhoeffer. Now, there's a personal uh, side to this as well. I mentioned my mother is German. Uh, she grew up in Germany during this period. My mother was a uh, nine-year-old when her father was killed in the war. My grandfather was a genuinely reluctant German soldier. Uh, he would listen to the BBC with his ear literally pressed against the radio speaker because if you were caught listening to BBC in those days, you could be sent to a concentration camp. And uh, this, this has been a painful part of, of our family history, this idea uh, that, that uh, what Germany went through and what Germany did to the world and to Europe and to the Jews, and it just was something that I've always wondered about. And so when I heard about this hopeful, inspiring story of this man of faith who did the right thing, it captivated me. So all these years later, I thought, yes, if I were to write a second biography, it would be about Bonhoeffer. And of course, uh, I assented to do that. And... Um, I never dreamt that the book would do well, I'm being honest. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm not used to success. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, uh, I therefore don't take it for granted. I therefore thank the Lord for every little bit because uh, a lot of people work hard and they don't uh, get to talk to crowds like this. Nothing is guaranteed. So this to me is such a blessing that this book has been received as it has. I honestly simply didn't expect anything along the lines of, of, of what's happened. But I think there's something about the story which is compelling. In fact, I think there are many things about the story which are particularly compelling, which I think speak to us about our own era in some way. Maybe we can unpack that in the Q&A. Um, as a result of this uh, book, I've had the privilege of uh, meeting two presidents of the United States, um, Grover Cleveland and... <laughs> Well, okay, I mean, I, let, me, let me think that through. It, it was, I got up very early this morning. No, it was not Cleveland. It was Benjamin Harrison, I'm sorry, Benjamin Harrison. Um, no, actually, I got a handwritten letter from George W. Bush, who read the book. People say, oh, he's intellectually incurious. He, he must be an idiot. He doesn't read. Wrong. He read a 600-page book on a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer and wrote me this wonderful handwritten letter. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm not used to getting handwritten letters from U.S. presidents. Uh, my family, uh, we have so many uh, letters from presidents, but they, they're always typed in a, in, a beautiful, in, in, in a beautiful courier font. And I was really d disappointed that he didn't take the trouble to type it. So, um, but I get this letter from George W. Bush. I got to meet with him for an hour in his office in Dallas. And then, lo and behold, uh, just a couple of months ago, I had the high privilege of meeting a sitting president uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. I was the speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, an extraordinarily august honor, if ever there was such a thing. Um, and got to meet President Obama and rudely hand him a copy of my book and try to pressure him, guilt him into reading the book. Uh, you know, I said, hey, George Bush read it. Come on. So, thank you. I think uh, we're going to have to send him this tape. And, uh, but uh, I just thought it was, it, it, it was funny to, uh, to give him a copy of the book. Uh, but, you know, I don't expect these kinds of things in life. So as I say, I'm very, very grateful. There's something about this story. So let me tell you the story. Um, okay, Bonhoeffer, as some of you probably already know, was born into what can only be described as an amazing family. I go into this in depth in the book because um, 
it was one of these families that when you read about it, you can't help but feel jealous. No matter how wonderful your family is, there's something about the Bonhoeffer family that I was agog at the talent, at the genius, at the kindness, at the cultural sophistication. This is, if you're going to be born into a family, if you get to pick, this would be the one, I think. Um, uh, Bonhoeffer was born in 1906. He was the youngest of four brothers. Uh, there were also four uh, girls in the family. And um, this family was... Uh, really spectacular. Now you have to say, first of all, the father, his father was the most famous psychiatrist in Germany for the first half of the 20th century, which is 50 years. Did you know that? I'm an English major, but I did it, I did it just like that. Uh, but think of this, that his father was literally the most famous psychiatrist in Germany, one of the great scientists and medical doctors of Europe. That's his father. And the culture of the family, the mother was also a genius. Uh, the, the brothers and sisters were all geniuses. They all end up marrying geniuses. Extraordinarily impressive. Uh, his, his brother, um, uh, his ancestors were, uh, were geniuses. Uh, his, his brother, Carl Friedrich, just to show you how impressive uh, all these siblings are, decides to go into physics and ends up splitting the atom with Max Planck and Albert Einstein. Uh, I, I've seen the, the atom. It's in a museum in Dresden. It's about the size of a softball. They were, they were much larger in those days, but he, he was one of the first ones to split it. But honestly, he split the atom. So can you imagine competing with that around the dinner table? What, what did you do this week while well, I split the atom with Einstein? What, 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 do, you, what do you got going on, Dietrich? Uh, and so it really, it, but it was like that. The whole family's like that. The other brother, uh, 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 Klaus, becomes the legal head of Lufthansa. They were all impressive geniuses. And the father created a culture in this family where you, you had to think clearly, right? You had to think like a scientist. You have to base what you have to say and what you think on the facts and on the logic. Uh, where will the logic lead you? Don't be afraid of the logic. Don't be afraid of the facts. Be afraid of not having the facts, being afraid. Be afraid of thinking with your emotions. But think through everything because ideas matter. You may, after all, end up dying for what you say you believe. So there's something about the culture of this family that was very uh, rigorous. Uh, they were all uh, academically ambitious. Uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, well, I should say, not only were they uh, really forced by the father, I make that sound so terrible, but, the, but the, the, in the culture of the family, forced to think things through and to be careful what you say, to not think in terms of, of slogans or cliches, but to really think clearly and then to express oneself clearly. And if you don't have something to say, consider shutting up. And, uh, and then, once you really know what you believe, once you've tested and tried your idea, then you have to live it. It's not just enough to have some academic idea, some intellectual idea, but, but you have to back it up with action. If you really believe something, you will live it, it will be evident. I mean, this was part of the culture of this amazing family. At age 14, Bonhoeffer decides, or declares, I should say, to the family that he wants to be a theologian. Uh, this was a little surprising. They didn't uh, expect this from him. He was a musical virtuoso. They thought he might go into music. Um, but no, he, he knew that he wanted to be a theologian at age 13. At age 14, he announces it. I don't think he said anything lightly in this family. You kind of think it through carefully, and because uh, they would hold you to it for like a lifetime. And so he, he announces at 14 he wants to be a theologian. Um, and what he meant by that, I think it's clear, was that he wanted to be to distinguish himself in the academic field of theology. It's not so much that he wanted to be a pastor or something like that. He wanted to distinguish himself academically as a theologian, um, and that he did. Uh, he goes first to Tübingen and then to Berlin University, which was the place on the planet to study theology at that time. 
and uh, he impresses the living legends on the faculty of this extraordinary uh, school. Uh, he gets his doctorate at age 21. Yeah, very impressive, isn't it? Almost as, as impressive as writing for Veggie Tales, Tim. Just let me say that. <laughs> oh, almost. And, uh, uh, but yeah, he gets his doctorate at age 21. Any, anybody here get their doctorate at age 21? I'm always curious. 21? 21? Me either. Uh, although I can, say, I can announce publicly, I just began two weeks ago. This is true. You know this. I just started working on my honorary doctorate. It's, uh, yeah. I've, I've thought about it a lot, but two weeks ago, I'm, I just leapt in. I said, I got to get this, got to get, got to start. And uh, so I, <laughs> so Bonhoeffer gets his, his, uh, his doctorate at age 21. And what is the question that he's uh, asking and answering as a theologian on this very high theological level? The question is, what is the church? What is the church? Uh, he impresses everybody with his high theology on this question, what is the church? But then he finds in the course of answering this question on this high academic theological level that he actually loves the church itself and that he doesn't just want to be an academic theologian but in fact he wants to be ordained as a Lutheran minister as well. Uh, you couldn't get ordained until you were 25 years old so he decides uh, at age 22 to go to Barcelona, Spain for a year to uh, pastor or to, to be an assistant vicar in a German-speaking congregation in Barcelona. He picks up Spanish like in a weekend and, uh, <laughs> and if, you're, if you're that kind of a person I hate you, and, uh, and uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he reads, uh, you know, Don Quixote, like in the original, you know, this is, this is the kind of a brain we're talking about. Uh, at age 24, he decides he'd like to spend a year in America, and he comes to New York City, um, where he enrolls for, uh, for a year at Union Theological Seminary. Now, I, I always have to say that, uh, and if you read the book, you know this, it's kind of funny, Bonhoeffer did not expect to find much by way of theology at Union uh, seminary, uh, and he was not disappointed. Uh, it's almost funny, he's clearly looking down his, his theological nose, his German theological, Berlin University theological nose, at what passes for theology at Union. Now, he was not theologically liberal, really, uh, but he respected the theological liberals at Berlin University. Berlin University was very theologically liberal, so, so he didn't really come out in the same place, but he learned from them, he respected them, he dialogued with them, he learned to speak the language, and to, uh, to, he, he was able to learn so much from them. Um, but now he gets to Union, and the theological liberalism at Union does not impress him. He finds it just to be shallow, kind of knee-jerk, anti-fundamentalism. We've, we've never seen that, right? And uh, he really is a little bit scandalized because he thinks, well, you know, you ought to be able to theologically back up your, your position better. Don't just think, you know, the fundamentalists are stupid and I disagree with them and that's my theological position. Uh, and he really, um, yeah, he was, he was just um, a little, he writes about it in his, uh, in his diary and in letters and it really, some of it is quite funny. Um, uh, so I, I quote it in, in the book just because uh, I, it is funny to hear this this uh, brilliant young man uh, give his opinion, which he doesn't realize will be read by millions uh, in the future about Union. But um, uh, anyway, what happens to him in New York is less, has much less to do with his theological studies at Union than with what happened in Harlem. Uh, at Union, he met a fellow student, an African-American from Alabama named Frank Fisher, who invites Bonhoeffer up to Harlem one Sunday in September of 1930 to visit Abyssinian Baptist Church, which was a huge congregation, I think literally the largest church in America at the time. Um, Bonhoeffer goes to this African-American church in Harlem and what he sees absolutely blows his mind. 
He had never seen anything quite like this. This was a congregation that was obviously very familiar with suffering. Uh, the African Americans in 1930 knew suffering, so they were not playing at church. This was not just something they did uh, because they weren't Jewish or atheist. Or, or they went because it was clear to Bonhoeffer they really believed this stuff, that this was a congregation of people who really believed this stuff, who really worshipped Jesus, who weren't ashamed of worshipping him. The preaching was fiery gospel preaching. Um, you know, this whole idea that we must be saved, we must uh, accept Jesus, this was all part of the package. And Bonhoeffer had, had seen almost none of this in the dispassionate uh, Lutheran circles in Berlin that he'd experienced. So he was very moved. He was very moved by the worship. The worship was not mere singing. It was real worship of God. Uh, he was so moved by his experience, uh, and I should say also that the it wasn't just preaching and, and, and theologically correct and evangelism, but this was a congregation that clearly wanted to live out what they were hearing preached from the pulpit. Uh, so it translated into actual action, into, a, into their lives. He was so impressed by this that he decides to go back to Harlem, to this church, every Sunday that he is in New York City, which uh, is an amazing thing to think of this toe-headed, bespectacled Berlin academic going up to Harlem to worship in this African-American church. Very, very uh, uh, extraordinary, but he was absolutely transfixed and changed by it. Uh, he did this, he became friends with, with people in the congregation, he, he got involved in the lives uh, of many of the congregation, and he um, also taught Sunday school there uh, every Sunday. Um, so, and took a, a real interest in, the, in the, the budding civil rights movement, traveled to Washington, D.C., visited Howard University, and, and met with a lot of prominent uh, uh, African-American leaders at that time. Pretty extraordinary when you think this is 1930 and 1931 we're talking about. But he was really just taken with this whole experience. When he comes back to Germany in the summer of 1931, his friends can tell he's different somehow. Uh, he's not the same. Now, he was clearly a Christian before this. When you read, I quote at length, some of the things he wrote as a young man, this guy had an understanding of Christianity which is breathtaking. Uh, breathtaking. But somehow his experience at Union touched his heart. Uh, and you can see that, that his heart is, is, is changed. His friends can see that his heart is changed, I should say. And they see that he takes God more seriously. He takes going to church more seriously. Uh, in, the, in the pulpit and behind the lectern when he's uh, speaking at, um, uh, at Berlin University now as a, as a teacher, he begins to say things that you would not hear in those theological circles. He talks about the Bible as the word of God. Um, he asks one of his students, do you love Jesus? That's not the kind of thing you were hearing uh, in Berlin University theological circles at this time. You know, they would be talking about Jesus as the historical figure, they would talk about the Bible as a text, but this, this robust uh, experience uh, of, of Christian faith that Bonhoeffer had seen at, at uh, Abyssinian, excuse me, uh, among the African Americans, he now takes this idea back to Germany and begins to teach uh, about Christianity as though it is a living faith in a living God who wrote a living Bible and who wants to speak to us through the Bible. This, as I say, very dramatic, but he was brilliant enough to be able to get away with it. Um, uh, he really um, begins to school his students in not just what it is to know about Christianity, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, we get his book, Discipleship, this idea that we're called to die to self and to become disciples of Jesus Christ, to put it into action, to live it out. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of baloney, a bunch of dead religion. 
Um, as I say, this was a very rare thing. Bonhoeffer uh, also began speaking out politically. Of course, the Nazis are rising. When Bonhoeffer left for New York in 1930, the Nazis were the ninth largest party in the Reichstag. Uh, when he comes back, they're the second largest party, uh, political party in the Reichstag. Uh, he can see that Germany is beginning to turn toward National Socialism, toward Hitler. Obviously, they had very little idea of where they would end up. Most people had no idea where this was all going, but they knew that they didn't like where they were. They were in economic misery, and they would do anything, it seems, to get out of this misery and the shame of losing World War I. It's hard for us to understand what the Germans lost, because we, we have really forgotten. The, the Nazis so obliterated uh, our, our idea of Germany that we, we in, the, in the writing of this book, as a German, I was stunned at the treasure, the history, the culture that they had before uh, World War I and before the Nazis. It's an unbelievable thing. And so you can see that the Nazis uh, were, were playing this siren song and, and, and promising to restore Germany to its former glory. Of course, Bonhoeffer sees through this. Uh, he, um, almost alone, had the ability to see where this was leading, and he begins speaking out publicly against the Nazis um, from the beginning. He says at one point that in Germany, Christians can only have one savior, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, an extraordinary thing to say, given the context of the time. When, when Hitler becomes chancellor, January 31st, 1933, two, year, uh, two days later, Bonhoeffer goes on the radio and gives a famous speech in which he speaks out publicly against the whole idea of the, um, the Fuhrer principle. Now, many of you know the word Fuhrer is the German word for leader, and there was this idea, the Fuhrer principle, um, which Hitler really rode into power, this idea that Germany's looking for a strong leader, that they had it under the Kaiser, they lost it after World War I when the Kaiser abdicates, and, and now they need a strong leader to restore them, to restore the nation. They bought this idea, and Bonhoeffer on the radio two days after Hitler becomes the embodiment of this idea, on the radio dissects this uh, as a tautology, as a snake swallowing its own tail, as, as a foolish, uh, silly idea that has nothing to do with true leadership. Bonhoeffer, of course, unpacks the biblical idea of leadership, which is that uh, God's idea of leadership is that a leader is supposed to be um, a servant leader, right? Uh, that the greatest will be the least, and the least will be the greatest. This, this Christian idea that, that uh, if I'm uh, going to lead, I have to be prepared to die for the men under me or for my family. That's what leadership is, that you give of yourself for those you're leading. You don't lord it over them. On the contrary, you serve them. Uh, Bonhoeffer talks about uh, this idea of leadership, contrasts it with the Nazi idea, with, with Hitler's idea of leadership, two days after Hitler uh, has, has become Chancellor. Bonhoeffer also says that a true leader has to be himself submitted to a higher authority. So you get your authority as a leader because you're submitted to a higher authority. Uh, of course, Hitler was submitted to no authority uh, beyond himself. Uh, so Bonhoeffer says this. So from the beginning, out of the gate, he is publicly against the Nazis and against Hitler. He's not speaking in a merely incendiary way. It's very measured. There's still great hope that Germany can turn things around. There's no, nobody dreaming that this is going to go on for 10 nightmarish uh, years. Um, so Bonhoeffer begins speaking publicly against this uh, in uh, 1934, he is one of the uh, principal architects of what becomes uh, known as the Barman Declaration. Um, Bonhoeffer um, saw that the first battle has to do with the, with the state trying to encroach upon 
the church, right? This is what the Nazis immediately did. They figured, well, you know, the church and state have always worked side by side. It's always been sort of a unified authority under the Kaiser, and we'll have the same under Hitler. But of course, uh, Hitler's idea of this was very far from the Kaiser's idea. And so Germany, uh, the German church finds itself now being subjected to Nazi doctrine, and the Nazis try to infiltrate the church, try to take over the church, and try to remake it uh, in their miserable uh, social Darwinist image, which of course is the antithesis of true Christianity. Bonhoeffer sees this, but many Germans at the time didn't, many Christians at the time didn't. They somehow thought that this is, we're compatible. It's very easy for us in hindsight to say, well, obviously it wasn't compatible, but it was not so easy. Uh, and if we'd been alive then, it would have not been easy for us to see it. But Bonhoeffer uh, somehow is able to see what his contemporaries could not see and begins to warn and speak out against the Nazis taking over the church as they were doing. Uh, and as I say, it culminates in 1934 in the Barman Declaration where a group of pastors uh, say, we will not be part of the German Reichskirche, which is the state church taken over by the Nazis. This is no longer the uh, Lutheran evangelical church in Germany and we will separate from it. Very dramatic. They didn't have like, you know, 40 years of symposia. Uh, within a year, uh, they decided we've got to pull away. This is heresy and we'll have nothing to do with it. Very brave, about 6,000 pastors signed this. They become what's known as the confessing church. These are uh, the good guys uh, in the story or some of the good guys in the story. Um, but Bonhoeffer can see that this is only a momentary victory, that the establishment of the confessing church in the midst of the Third Reich uh, is, is not enough. He can see that the Nazis are so aggressive and so politically canny and smart in every way that they're outmaneuvering the church at every turn. And the church was very timid, very afraid uh, to call a spade a spade, very afraid to say this is evil, we've got to do it. They, they, were, they were sort of playing patty cake with the devil. That's, that's how I see it. They didn't realize what they were dealing with. But Bonhoeffer somehow can see what is happening. Um, Bonhoeffer uh, really knows that this battle is going to go on for a long time, and we've got to figure out a way to, uh, to deal with this. And, and his way of dealing with it, uh, and this is important to say, is that he prayed and asked God to lead him, to show him what to do. What is a Christian to do in a time like that. How does a Christian respond? There's no cookie cutter answer uh, because uh, God has different answers for, for all of us. One is supposed to, to do this and another is supposed to do that. I think of Dietrich von Hildebrandt, a Catholic uh, philosopher uh, who felt God called him to leave Germany when the Nazis took power. Bonhoeffer did not feel led to leave Germany. But the point is that, that Bonhoeffer understood God has to lead me. Uh, I am now in terra incognita. There's no answer. What do we do? How do we fight? Um, in 1933, Bonhoeffer goes, uh, he's sort of uh, disgusted, really, with the way things are going. He decides to go to, um, to England for a year. As I mentioned, he's fluent in English. Uh, and he pastors a, a German-speaking congregation in London for 18 months. And then he comes back because the leaders of the Confessing Church say, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we want to deputize you to lead a seminary for us. Because the Confessing Church wanted to have its own seminaries to train up real men of God. And um, obviously the Nazified uh, Reichskirche is not doing this. So Bonhoeffer is, is asked in early 1935 to lead an illegal seminary. And he does this uh, up on the Baltic Sea at Zingst and then at Finkenwalde in Pomerania. And this is, a, I think of this as the golden era of Bonhoeffer. Of course, I write about this in the book because he's able to put into practice his thinking about Christianity, which is that he's going to take these young men who want to be Lutheran pastors and he's not going to teach them merely how to exegete scripture and how to run a service. He's going to teach them what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
He's going to teach them how to pray. Now, you know, many uh, church leaders were a little bit scandalized by this. You don't have to teach them how to pray. Of course they know how to pray. Bonhoeffer said, no, no, no. We have to teach them actually how to pray, how to live the faith, not just to think about it or to talk about it, but how to live it. How do we live it? How do we have a relationship with the living God? What does that look like? We have to model that uh, for these young men so that they can model it for their congregations. Uh, that's really what the church has been since, uh, since it was founded 2,000 years ago. We've got to do this. And so he begins to do this. He begins to teach them um, how to meditate on a, on a uh, passage of scripture and to, to expect God to speak to them through the scripture. What does the scripture say to me today? Uh, he was enforcing this idea that God is alive and wants to speak to you personally. And again, this scandalized some of the more hidebound uh, Lutherans. And if there are any in this room, I apologize for even bringing that up. But, um, but I think that, uh, you know, it, it really was very brave of him. But he figures this is where the facts lead me. This is where the evidence, this is, this is what Christianity is. So he begins to do this, but the Gestapo uh, is onto it. And two years later, they shut down Finkenwalde. Um, Bonhoeffer, canny uh, as he was, takes it uh, underground. He kind of, uh, you know, does the, the teaching sort of, uh, I, I think of it as kind of becomes like a floating craps game. You know, the, the Nazis don't know where it's happening. It's in a vicarage here in a farmhouse there. Bonhoeffer continues teaching all of these young men, but now it's, it's less official and the, the Gestapo's fooled for another couple of years. But then uh, even that, uh, the Gestapo catches up with them and they shut that down. So Bonhoeffer is constantly praying, constantly asking God to lead him, to show him, what do I do now? What do I do now, Lord? Lead me. And um, it, it's very clear that uh, he, was, he was expecting God to lead him and that God was leading him. And in 1938, Bonhoeffer can see that his, his possibilities for serving God in the Third Reich are becoming increasingly circumscribed and limited and limited and winnowed down to nothing. Uh, he is now, of course, forbidden from, from teaching, as I've said, but he's also forbidden from speaking publicly and then finally from publishing um, because he had the temerity to write a book on the Old Testament Psalms. Uh, there are no New Testament Psalms. Am I getting that right? Uh, he, he, now, this is hilarious and deeply tragic, but this is true. The Nazified German state church uh, was trying to redefine Christianity. And remember, the people will always do this. They're doing it today, okay? You try to redefine Christianity along your own terms. And the Nazis, as they did that, decided that true German Christianity must be utterly devoid of all Jewish elements. Good luck with that project. Uh, but they actually believed this. They thought that, you know, Christianity, it's a, you know, it's a living thing and we don't have to be bound by history and uh, orthodox theology. We can do what we like and so we can call whatever we want Christianity. And so really they were, it was a kind of Nietzschean, uh, neo-pagan uh, religion that, that not only has nothing to do with Christianity, it's antithetical to Christianity. Their motto and their virtue was to crush the weak, not to bless the weak, not to all the things, the mercy and all these Christian virtues they despised. Um, and it's a funny thing, because I write about this in the book as well, that it's hard for us to believe that the Nazis were not just not Christians, because some people are crazy enough to think that the Nazis were Christians. They were Gentiles. They were not Christians. Um, but they weren't only not Christians, they were bitterly anti-Christian. But they were very canny about it, and they weren't about to say that because they understood that most Germans thought of themselves as Christians, so they had to play this game. But Bonhoeffer sees this. He sees what's going on, and, and when he decides to write a book on the Psalms, uh, even that was a stick in the eye to the Nazi establishment because the Psalms were considered 
to Jewish, right? The whole Old Testament was considered something that we can eventually dispense with because it's too Jewish. We want to have a German, a pure German Christianity. Of course, it's utterly nonsensical, it's insane, but they believe this, and Bonhoeffer's forbidden from publishing as a result of writing that book. So again, he's asking, Lord, what do I do? How do I serve you? Uh, he saw the war was coming, that was very clear. He knew he could not fight in Hitler's war. Now Bonhoeffer has been portrayed many times as a pacifist. I think that's quite wrong. Um, I think he's a pacifist the way any Christian would be a, a, a pacifist, but not in our contemporary version of, of, of pacifism. Sometimes I, I often think he's been portrayed as though had he lived, he would be the third person uh, in the bed with John and Yoko. And <laughs> you've just, you just dated yourselves by laughing at that joke. Uh, but. Uh, but he, he wasn't that kind of a pacifist, but this was a man who knew he would not fight in Hitler's war because Hitler's war was a war of aggression. Uh, he understood that Hitler was a tyrant and a monster, and there was just no way he would ever be deceived into thinking that he's defending the fatherland. He understood this is a war of aggression uh, against the other European powers, and so he would have nothing to do with it. But what would he do? You didn't have the ability to say, oh, I'd like to be a conscientious objector. He's praying and saying, Lord, uh, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, and now the war is coming and I will not pick up a gun. What will I do? How will I serve you? So of course at this point, as we know, he decides to go back to America. Uh, so in June of 1939, um, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, pulls strings, other people pull strings and write letters so that Pastor Bonhoeffer can come to America and can save face, not to look like he's escaping anything, but that he's going there just ahead of the war and that he's going to look like he gets stuck there and he gets to spend a few years out of harm's way uh, and he can uh, not uh, do something that he doesn't want to do, which as I say would be to fight in the war. He refuses to do that. So um, Bonhoeffer goes to America, but no sooner does he get off the ship in New York than he knows he's probably made an error. Uh, he, in, in, the, in the chapter uh, in the book about this, uh, I quote copiously from his letters uh, and his journals from this period because you can see him wrestling with God. He is asking God, what do I do? Do you want me to be in New York? I don't feel your peace about this. What do you want me to do? And he wrestles with this and you can just imagine, he knows that if, if he were to go back, he's going back into real danger. But, but uh, he, every day he's reading the scriptures and he's praying and asking God to, to show him what, what is what do you want me to do? And at the end of the day, he decides, yes, uh, God wants him to go back to Germany uh, to stand with his people during this terrible time. And so 26 days after he has come to New York, he gets on a ship uh, in early July and sails back across the Atlantic, back to Germany. Um, what was he going to do when he got to Germany? Well, that's another question, uh, and I'll tell you what he was going to do. It's very dramatic, and it's an extraordinary part of the story, he decides to officially join the conspiracy against Adolf Hitler. Now, folks, uh, that was a daring thing to do for anybody, for a pastor, a man of God, to say that I'm going to get involved in this wide conspiracy against uh, the head of my own nation. Uh, almost no one would understand this. It's not as if his friends would say, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. No, most people would think that was crazy, but he really felt God was calling him to do this. It's important to say also that Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law, Donanyi, was um, one of the heads of the conspiracy. In fact, I should say that the Abwehr, German military intelligence, uh, unlike the Gestapo, was uh, a center of uh, anti-Hitler sentiment. In fact, it was the very center of the conspiracy against 
Adolf Hitler. Uh, Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law was one of the heads of the Abwehr and one of the heads of this uh, secret conspiracy. And he asks his young uh, brother-in-law, would you like to work for me? It'll preserve uh, the illusion that you're serving the Third Reich during a time of war. Uh, but we know, you know and I know, uh, that you will in fact be working against the Third Reich. You will, be, uh, you will have this illusion uh, for the public that you are you know, doing uh, the good German thing, but we know that you will be using your position as a member of German military intelligence during a time of war to undermine and work against Hitler and the Nazis. And so he was going to travel around Europe as a member of the German military intelligence to use his ecumenical contacts to further uh, the aims of the Third Reich. That was the public face, but in reality he was going to secretly meet and did secretly meet with members of the allied governments in neutral countries such as Switzerland or Sweden. This was the goal. Now this is high stakes poker, folks. This is very dangerous, but Bonhoeffer felt God had called him to do this. Uh, and so this is what he does. He becomes a double agent, he becomes a spy, uh, and he actually believed that his theology and God led him to do this, to stand against the Nazis in this way, not merely to talk about it, but now to stop talking about it and to do something, to take action. So. This is uh, consonant with Bonhoeffer's idea about cheap grace, uh, about religionless Christianity, this idea that to, to just talk about your faith, at some point you, you must act. You're, what you believe, just as I said when he was a child, what you believe, you must test what you believe, you must think it through. Is this really true? Do you know this is true? And if you know this is true, now you must act on it. It has to lead you to action. Bonhoeffer lived that way, and at this point he lives this way in a very dramatic way. Um, he continues to write. Uh, in 1942, in the midst of all of this, uh, he falls in love. That story has never really been told in any narrative form before. I was amazed. I didn't expect to say anything new in my book. I just wanted to tell the, the story uh, in a fresh way. But I have to say the story of his love affair and his engagement to Maria von Wedemeyer had never really been told before. Um, the love letters between them weren't published until 1992. Uh, and so I was able to use uh, that book, which was edited by Bonhoeffer's uh, fiancé's elder sister, whom I had the privilege actually of meeting uh, in Germany a few years ago with my wife. Um, and, and beautiful letters, and so I tell that story. Uh, he falls in love, as I say, in 1942. He becomes engaged rather quickly uh, in 1943. But no sooner is he engaged than uh, the Gestapo finally catches up with him. He's arrested in April of 1943 in his home, uh, which you can visit uh, in Berlin on Maria Burger Allee in Berlin. Uh, he's arrested, but he's not arrested for his involvement in the plot to kill Hitler. This is, I think, very interesting, because people sort of, if you tell the story, or if I've heard the story, people think that's why he's arrested. He wasn't arrested for that. He was arrested for his involvement in something called Unternehmen Sieben, Operation Seven, uh, a plan to get seven Jews out of Germany and into neutral Switzerland to save their lives. This was why he was arrested. There was some money laundering. It's a whole story. Of course, I tell that in the book, but that's why he was arrested. Uh, he's sent to Tegel Military Prison, being a military prison, not a Gestapo prison. He's treated reasonably well. If you had to go to prison uh, in Nazi Germany, that would be a good one to go to. His uncle um, was the military commandant over all of Berlin. And so they treated Bonhoeffer in this 
prison with kid gloves. They treated him rather well, gave him some special privileges to the point that he was offended because he thought, this is disgusting that you're treating me this way just because my uncle is a big shot, and he refused some of the privileges. But he was free in the prison to minister as a pastor, to counsel fellow prisoners, to counsel many of the prison guards whom he'd befriended. They really liked him. Uh, he was able to do that, to continue his writing, to write many letters uh, home to his uh, friends and, and family and to his... Uh, his fiancée, Maria van Vedemeyer. Um, this goes on for some time. In uh, 19... Well, I should say that while he's in prison, he fully expects to get out. He fully expects that his case will come to trial and that he'll be able to fool the prosecutor that he really wasn't that involved in the plot to get these Jews out of Germany. Uh, he just would put himself forward as a woolly-headed academic. And by the way, if there are any woolly-headed academics, again, I apologize. But... Uh, Bonhoeffer was, was fully intent on deceiving the prosecutor and getting out. And he's planning to get out. He's writing letters to his fiancée. They're planning their marriage, uh, their wedding. Uh, uh, Bonhoeffer's fiancée says at one point that she, she'd always expected that he would be the preacher to speak uh, at her wedding, but that's before she thought of him as marriage material. Now she's getting married to him. They've got to find another preacher. There's beautiful letters be be between them, and I, I quote them a lot. It's one of the reasons the book is long, because there's so much beautiful material. Um, and I, I have to say that he, he expected that he would either win the case or the Allies would win the war, and this nightmare would finally come to an end. Or thirdly, the third option, the conspirators who were out there still plotting to kill Hitler, who'd not been imprisoned, they would succeed in killing Hitler, uh, and that finally things would end that way. And of course, there were many plots. I, I talk in depth about three of the attempts to kill Hitler in the book. I just felt it was important to put them in. These are some of the most fascinating stories I've ever encountered, and it's one of the reasons that I had to put them into the book, because not only do they give the story um, some context, but uh, they're, they're amazing stories just from history to know how hard they tried uh, and, of course, failed. Now, the final plot in July of 1944, Bonhoeffer has been in prison for over a year, kind of surprised that he hasn't gotten out yet, but there's this final attempt to kill Hitler in July 20th, 1944. The Valkyrie plot, some of you know about it, it fails. And not only does it fail to kill Hitler, as the other ones fail to kill Hitler, but the bomb does go off, and for the first time, the conspiracy to kill Hitler is exposed. Thousands are now arrested, tortured, names come up. One of the names at the top of the list is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So from here on in, it's pretty clear his days are numbered. Uh, he's transferred at this point to the Gestapo prison, uh, the dreaded Gestapo prison. Uh, he doesn't seem to have been tortured, although he was threatened with it. Um, his brother was tortured. Uh, it's, it's a grisly period, a bleak period. The Allies, of course, are bombing uh, Berlin to smithereens, to rubble. Uh, the the uh, prisoners at the Gestapo prison have to be moved from the Gestapo prison, which is, uh, which is falling apart under the bombing of the Allies. He's moved to Buchenwald, where he's uh, for about two months. That is an amazing part of the story. I hope you'll read the book just for the ending of the book, which to me is one of the most amazing uh, things. I was so fascinated with it. And the last week of his life, and perhaps the most uh, fascinating part for me, um, where he is moved in a van with a group of other elite prisoners. You can hardly believe uh, who is in that group. It's just uh, something right out of a, a, a movie, like a dream sequence, except it really happened. Um, and then, of course, we know how it ends. April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer had just the day before been transferred to Flossenburg concentration camp. Now, keep in mind, it's only three weeks before the end of the war, three weeks before Hitler kills himself in the bunker beneath Berlin. 
Bonhoeffer is taken to Flossenburg concentration camp, and on the express orders of Hitler, specifically for revenge, uh, he is executed at dawn on April 9th. Now, I think we're tempted merely to think of this as a sad story, as a tragic story, uh, but I think Bonhoeffer would be first in line to rebuke us for doing that, just as Jesus rebukes Peter. And uh, when Peter says, you know, no, Lord, we're not going to allow you to be, to be killed that way. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking the thoughts of God. You're thinking the thoughts of man. Uh, if this is God's will, uh, Peter, uh, who are you uh, to say that? And, and I think Bonhoeffer really had a sense that all through these years and up until the end, he was following God carefully, prayerfully, deliberately, and that if God had led him to this pass, if God had led him to the place where he would literally give his life, he talked his whole life about this idea, this famous Bonhoeffer quote, when Christ uh, bids a man uh, to come, he bids him to come and die. We're to die to self. That is what it is to be a Christian. If you're not interested in that, don't become a Christian. But if you become a Christian, that's what it is. You die to yourself and you give your life to God for his purposes. And he determines uh, the details. And Bonhoeffer, I think it's clear, goes to the gallows without fear. Uh, in fact, in 1933, 12 years before he dies, he gives a famous sermon. I end the book with this and I'll end now. Uh, he gives a famous sermon in 1933 as a young man to a Lutheran congregation um, where he talks about death. Uh, and he says that death is the most terrible thing imaginable unless it is transformed by faith. Because Bonhoeffer says, if you actually have ever glimpsed the kingdom of heaven, really, you are from that hour homesick to be with God. If you've ever actually come to know the living God, you know that you belong with him. And death has no power over you. you. You have no fear of death because you know that there is no such thing as death. He has destroyed death actually, genuinely. It's not just a, a metaphor. It's not just a happy story. It's true. It's the fairy tale that's true. Bonhoeffer believes this. He preaches this in 1933. It's all the the, the more uh, evident to us now that he believed this strongly, more strongly, in 1945 when he went to the gallows. So he thought of death. In fact, he writes a poem not long before he dies where he says death is the last station on the road to freedom. He's going to the arms of the God whom he has served, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jews. He's going to be with him. And if God calls him to go there, he has no fear. And I think that's evident uh, even uh, 18 hours before his death, he preaches a sermon. We know this is true. He preaches a sermon from Isaiah to his fellow prisoners. This is a man who to the end is evangelizing the atheist Kokorin. Again, this is all in the book. Some of you read it. But it, it's incredible to see how robust his faith is all the way to the end. And he goes to his death. All the evidence we have is that he went to his death with a robust, profound faith, with a lack of fear uh, of death. And so I think finally it's a very inspiring story because Bonhoeffer shows us that this is what it is to actually have faith, to know, not to hope that God has conquered death, not to hope uh, that death is not scary, but to actually know, to know that this is true, you will live your life differently. I think it's safe to say we'll live our lives more like Bonhoeffer. If you really know this, it changes how you live. And so Bonhoeffer makes it clear uh, all through his, his uh, adult life that to be a Christian is to know that and to live that way. That will give you 
courage. You don't have to work up courage. It just naturally gives you courage. Uh, and you live that way. And you do things like you stand up for the Jews of Europe. Even though it's dangerous, you do it because God calls you to do it with no fear. He did that. So to me, it's a picture of faith which is ultimately extraordinarily encouraging and inspiring. Uh, I know from many uh, letters and emails uh, I've gotten from people that m many people uh, have never seen an example uh, like Bonhoeffer's. This is not a work of fiction. Uh, I, I hope every syllable in the book uh, is based on, on historical evidence. And so to me, it's a gift from God to us, this story uh, of a life lived in obedience to Christ, uh, which really uh, ought to uh, just inspire us and help us live the lives that we're called to live. We're not called to live that life, but we're called to live our own lives with the same kind of faith. I think we need heroes uh, from history to encourage us. As far as I'm concerned, um, this, is, uh, this is a good one. So let me recommend it to you, and uh, we'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have a microphone? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Too much. That's too much. Thank you. Thank you. No, no. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Don't get up. Don't get up. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to... Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just, if you kept clapping, I was going to sing, so it's a good thing you stopped. Thank you. God bless you. Thank right. you so much. Thank you. We are going to take a few questions in a minute, and that actually uh, is part of the joy of doing these. Eric, you know that from Socrates and City. This is the last event of this season, though, so I do want to say a few things before we get to that, and it will give Eric a chance to rest his voice. He's been speaking since 7 o'clock this morning. Um, one thing is we have actually almost all of next year's series planned and uh, we'll be announcing the entire series in the next month or two but I will tell you tonight and if you have a, a program I realize we, we ran out but it is in the program the first event of next year's series is Thursday October 11th 7 o'clock p.m. Thursday October 11th 7 o'clock p.m. with Brene Brown Brene was with us a couple of years ago you will enjoy her um, if you would like to get updates about upcoming events, the easiest way actually for us to communicate with you is through email. You can either, again, if you have one of these green sheets, you can fill out your email and place it in one of the baskets in the narthex. Uh, easier still is if you go to the Faith and Life website, there are forms there to enter your email and receive uh, email updates. And you may have heard of this thing called Facebook. Thank you. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We're actually almost at 900 likes. I'm going to guess there are more than a few of you here tonight with smartphones. Um, my hope is actually tonight that we'll break 1,000. So if you go to facebook.com slash faithandlife, if you like us, again, it's a very efficient, easy way for us to communicate upcoming events. Um, from the start of these uh, talks, uh, they have not been a budget item in the budgets of the churches that are sponsoring this, in, but instead have been paid entirely 
and wholly by the generosity of area corporations and individuals. Um, those individuals and organizations are listed in your program. Let me just lift up a few. Uh, Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, Productivity Inc., Luther Seminary, TCF Bank, Leaders Manufacturing, the McLaurin CSF uh, at the University of Minnesota, Fuzzy Duck Design and the Bookcase, um, as well as all of the individuals who are listed there who make these possible. You are here tonight at no cost and we're able to bring wonderful speakers like Eric here, thanks to the generosity of these individuals. Many of them are here tonight. Would you please thank them? Yeah. And uh, I have thanked him before, but Jeff Elstad, our wonderful guitarist right over here, has been with the series from the very beginning. Um, thank you for your intros and outros. Okay, we are gonna, we'll take uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes of questions. Uh, after that, just to again give you some context, uh, we'll be taking Eric, God willing, we can get through, uh, back to the fellowship hall, uh, which is back that way, you'll find it, uh, where he'll be able to sit down and he will inscribe books and talk to you until probably one or two in the morning, I would imagine, <laughs> given the crowd. Um, if, if you'd like to ask a question, it would be helpful if you would come up and, uh, like this young gentleman is doing, ask at one of these microphones. There's a microphone right there. There's a microphone right there. And John here has a microphone that he will wander around with as he is able. Um, so, here we go. Hey, uh, thank you for that. I'm wondering if there are any biographies you would recommend, having written two, I assume you're, you know, not averse to the genre. Other than, other than my two? Other than your two, yes. No, no. Which I'm sure are fantastic. <laughs> Next question. Uh, I, uh, that's tough. I, I, jo uh, John Pollock, John C. Pollock, uh, who's such a wonderful biographer of Christian heroes that he has the Pollock Biography Award at Beeson uh, Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, named for him, uh, and which my Bonhoeffer book won uh, uh, last year. A anything he's written is worth reading. He wrote a wonderful book on uh, George Whitfield, uh, and it makes me very happy because that means I don't ever have to think about writing a biography of Whitfield because he's taken care of it. But uh, really, he's written a number of them, so I will, I'll recommend the Whitfield one we, for, for time's sake. I will just say the George Whitfield, anything by John Pollock. Yes, okay. I guess we're going to go. We're going to go side to side. About whom do you think you'll write next? Uh, I have two questions. Yeah, that that's just, just the kind of cheeky question that I just uh, I like. Um, actually, cheeky. Uh, I thank you for, for asking that because it gives me the opportunity to to tell you the truth that I, I don't believe God uh, has called me to write any other biographies like these two. I feel these are two special figures whose stories needed to be told. Um, and I, by God's grace, told them. But I, I really don't think that I, I have it in me to write biographies uh, anymore. There's a lot more that I, that I want to do. So I, I, everywhere I go, people tell me, well, you know, should write on this guy and this guy. And there's so many tremendous, uh, actually, Hannah Moore, uh, I wrote uh, in my Wilberforce book, uh, The Figure of Hannah Moore. It's just this amazing uh, character who was one of Wilberforce's friends. Just she was a, a literary phenomenon and just so interesting and you know somebody ought to write uh, a wonderful biography about Hannah Moore there's so many people like that but I you know you can't you can't do everything and so I, I don't think that I will probably do another biography I'm sorry to say in some ways I'm sorry to say oh and this in the middle yes 
I have a question. I just want to say, too, that my father was in Patton's Third Army, and he was at the liberation of Dachau and took many photographs. So we never grew up with Holocaust denial in our family, nor... Unlike these other people. Well... Yes, they're all deniers. They won't say it publicly. No, I'll tell you the truth. One of the privileges for me of speaking uh, about uh, Bonhoeffer is that almost everywhere I go, I get to meet someone uh, who was... I mean, I've met Holocaust survivors, and it's just such... Such a joy, because this is a story where there are many people alive who are still alive from this era. In fact, forgive me for interrupting your question, but just in Germany, the book has been published in German, uh, and I was in Germany in January, and I gave a talk, and two men came up to me at the end. One of them uh, is the son of, uh, in the book I talk about, Fabian von Schlabrendorf, one of the heroes who planted the bomb on Hitler's plane. His son came up to me at the end of the talk. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and I just mentioned Bonhoeffer's uncle, uh, the head of the military coming out of Germany. His son came up to me at the same talk. I thought, this is living history. There are people who've experienced it. So anyway, thank you for Well, I'm a that. daughter, and I've lived the history. So, But I wanted to ask you if you would connect the dots for me about um, Martin Luther's book, The Jews and Their Lies, that he wrote in the 1500s. He was 60 years old at that time. And in your book, you said that Bonhoeffer wasn't really aware of it, yet Hitler used it as his manual for right. dealing with the Jews. Right. I mean, he said, burn their synagogues, cut their tongues out, you know, destroy their businesses and whatever. And how could Bonhoeffer, being a German Lutheran, not know about Luther's book I, from the That I, I don't know. I can only go by what Eberhard Baker, Bonhoeffer's uh, best friend, said uh, in, a, in a video interview, they, they simply didn't, they didn't know about that. Uh, and who's to, who's to uh, say what everyone knew? I don't know. But you get the general impression that they didn't. And I got the general impression, and which is what I wrote in the book, is that uh, you know, Luther was a complicated figure. And so it's, it's, very hard to, it's very hard to make sense of that. One thing we do know is that the Nazis, brilliant as they were, when they found this, they thought, aha, and they just underscored it and publicized it as much as possible so that every German could read the ravings of this, uh, uh, of the, you know, I would say, the mad uh, Luther at the end of his life, writing things that uh, he would have strongly disagreed with earlier in his life when he said so many wonderful things about the Jews. I quote some of that in the book. So it's, it's genuinely confusing. I think that's all I can say. Well, I was reading about the Nuremberg trials, and the American judge at the Nuremberg trials was talking, speaking to an SS that was being tried, and he said, do you know of any others that should be here today? And the SS guard said, yes, Martin Luther. Yeah, well, very convenient for the SS guard. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'd not heard that. Thank you. Uh, we're going to this side. Thank you. You spoke about when you were ending your talk about these emails and letters that you've been greatly encouraged to receive personally <coughs> about your book and that people were saying things like they'd never heard a story about a person of such faith, of, of such depth, of such commitment and that that inspired them. And I just wanted you to speak to the fact that you've done so much research, you've obviously been touched personally and maybe I've only heard a teeny bit of what's behind what you've said what is it about our culture in the church, capital C, that we can be so inspired by one man 
but maybe not inspired by the average Christian person? Um, I mean, I think I kind of paraphrase C.S. Lewis and to say that uh, there, there's no such thing as an average Christian person. In fact, there's no such thing as an average person that every person, uh, as C.S. Lewis says, is, uh, you know, a miracle, a creation. I mean, there's the, the idea that uh, what passes for Christianity is Christianity is itself a lie, right? In other words, that, that anybody who... Uh, gives his or her life to God genuinely is it's the most beautiful thing imaginable. And every time you see it, it's glorious. Now, the fact is we live in a culture that has become so secularized in the last, let's say, 50 or 60 years that you tend not to hear. Uh, I spoke about this on uh, uh, Minnesota Public Radio this morning. You tend not to hear these amazing stories of faith. You tend only to hear negative stories of faith, such that, <clears throat> you know, when I was in college, I just assumed that anybody who takes their faith seriously is a maniac and a nut with a bad haircut who will kill people if given a chance. Uh, that's not true. But I think that Hollywood and New York, where most of the culture is created, are so secular, they so misunderstand actual faith that they give us a, uh, often a very exaggerated negative impression of it and tend only to focus on the caricatures. Um, this is tragic, actually, for our culture because I think faith is uh, historically one of the greatest things I I that, that there is in history. You, you look around, I mean, uh, Wilberforce, my goodness, he led the battle for the abolition of the slave trade because of his faith in Jesus Christ. All the other phony pseudo-Christians who went to church but who didn't take it very seriously were perfectly fine with slavery. And you see this all through history, that when people take their faith really seriously, and, and I don't mean just people who are passionate, and I don't just mean people who are religious, but I mean people who actually, genuinely know the God of the Bible and serve him with humility, loving their fellow man. Those stories are uh, unavoidably beautiful, but we tend not to hear them. And that's why telling the two, these two stories of Bonhoeffer and Wilberforce, for me, uh, I think we need to know that, at least in these two cases, that uh, a passionate faith in Jesus Christ is one of the most uh, beautiful, uh, positive things that, that we have in history, uh, you know, in, especially in the case of the Nazis during this bleak time where you have so much evil uh, to see this light shining in the middle of it. So I really think that um, it's just a particular problem we, we have in our culture that we pretend like, you know, oh, well, what's going on? There's not much going on. You know, Bonhoeffer's story is so beautiful. Well, I promise you that while we're standing here, there are people humbly doing beautiful things for God that you'll never read about on the news. Nobody will ever write a biography about them. We need to know that. And frankly, we need to tell these stories and not only focus on the stories of really bastardized uh, pseudo-faith, which masquerades, of course, as, as real faith. It's not real faith. It's a caricature and a horror. Um, anyway, that's my soapbox. I get on that, so forgive me. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Bonhoeffer's home is still, you can visit it in Berlin. What, are there other things that you would suggest to connect with Bonhoeffer or the story of Bonhoeffer in Berlin if one visits Berlin? In just in, in Berlin? Well, yeah, in that area of Germany, yeah. Well, uh, there are two houses. One has been turned to a museum. That's the one I write about in the book uh, where he lived near the end of his life. His parents bought it, I guess, in 1935 or had it built in 35, I think. Um, uh, that's where he was arrested. And so that's been turned into like a, like a museum kind of thing. You can go there, go into the bedroom, uh, his bedroom. It's, it's amazing that it's there. His uh, piano is there. 
Um, it, it's, it's pretty, there's a lighted cigarette still lit, just kidding, no. Uh, there. But it, it, to really be there is so, it's so extraordinary. So that's number one on the list. But also, there is, uh, you have to do a little looking, but um, on the Wangenheimstrasse in a different part of Berlin is the house where he grew up which is now, it, it was such a huge mansion that it's carved into eight condos or something. But that's there, and you can at least look at it from the street. Uh, it's not so hard to find. The address, I think, is 14 Wangenheimstrasse. It's in my book, but you can go there. Um, uh, the Gestapo prison, uh, there, there, there are a number of places. I haven't even visited all of them. The Bendler Block, there, there's, um, I would say those two houses, though, would, would be would be the main ones. But as you read through the book, you, you can get as many ideas as I have about it. There's not much more. There, of course, Flossenburg Concentration Camp, which is some hours south of Berlin, uh, is also worth, uh, worth visiting. It would be at the top of the list for me. Let's do, uh, <clears throat> I, I get to play the role of the, the bad crusher, guy, crusher the of heavy. dreams. Oh. But let's do uh, two more, if you don't mind. I know we could stay here all night if we. If they're true or false yeah. questions, I could do yeah. 10 of them. So let's but, do one more. <laughs> one more in the middle and one more here. Okay. This will be an easy one for you, because you did so well at the prayer breakfast. But um, as in Bonhoeffer's day with the Jews and in Wilberforce's day with uh, slavery, what do you think is the people group of our, of our day, in your opinion, that is seen as less than human or non-human? This, um, yeah, this is like a trick question. It's one of those softball questions. Um, well, for me, one of those groups would be the unborn. But any, anybody who is human who... Uh, I, I think, you know, this is one of the challenges that, that, that Christians are always going to be in some ways, uh, you know, flowing with the conservative political tide and in some ways flowing with the liberal uh, political tide. We have, to, we have to figure out what is the Christian view of X, Y, and Z and wherever it puts you on the spectrum. It, you have to be Christians first. And I think that the issue of life, not just in the womb, but any kind of life. I was just recently at this Chuck Colson weekend with Johnny Erickson Tada, who uh, has become a paraplegic, and she's gone around uh, the world advocating for people with severe disabilities. This, this idea that, you know, we, um, and if you read the, 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 the Bonhoeffer book, you see that, that the Nazis were doing this. You begin to define humanity along your, in other words, God says that Every human being is created in my image and is sacred, an immortal, glorious creature. And, but we tend to say, well, okay, but uh, if you can't talk or think or if you're a quote-unquote vegetable, well, you're not really human. You're not really... I mean, you, you realize that this is, a, this is going to be a battle as technology has changed. Uh, this is a battle. So I think that that is, that is just one of the, the main issues uh, of our time. What, whom... Does God say uh, is who does God say is is human? That's that's the question. It's not about quality of life or anything like that. But for, for me, that would be the one that I, that I would talk about if I had more time. I, I have many other things to say, but we don't. So we'll go on. Thank you. Okay. Other than the unborn, who and what uh, do you think Bonhoeffer would resist today? T today. Today. Um. I think I am very uh, troubled by, uh, in, in our own government now, in America, this amazing nation, that the encroachment, and this is, na this is naturally what, what happens. It's just that at some point you, you have to recognize it and, and say, well, wait a minute. But wh whenever the government 
encroaches on the, uh, the church sphere, it's troubling. Now, we have in this country so enjoyed such extraordinary religious freedom that, of course, we take it for granted. And this is always the case. Anything you take for granted, you're in danger of losing. Uh, we have had more religious freedom in this country such that we don't even know what it is. We don't even talk about it. But I think that, um, now, of course, I'm not a Catholic, but I'm very troubled by the HHS mandate. I think that whether you agree, what, it doesn't matter what your position is on contraception, whatever, as, as an issue of religious <clears throat> freedom, as an American, not even as a religious American, as an American, you have to be troubled when the state does something unprecedented and begins saying that we're going to let majority rule decide. We have to have, I mean, this country is all about protecting minorities. And Catholics uh, who believe contraception is wrong are a distinct minority. And it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. We have to protect the freedom for people to think what they like, whether we disagree with it or don't. That's troubling to me. Don't move, please. <laughs> In part because I need to get him out of here. So uh, give me one second. Uh, also, one other logistical thing. Uh, actually, one question. We got a call from someone yesterday who said they were flying down from Winnipeg. Is she here? Wow. Right here. Stand up, lady. You get, wow. She gets, I, I gotta shake this woman's hand. I gotta, I gotta shake your hand. I'm blown away. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. I can't those believe of you, that. Those of you in the narthex, that would be the people out there. Uh, thank you for your patience in not being able to sit in here. It would be hugely helpful if before you leave you help some of our hospitality team uh, fold up those chairs, if that's not too much to ask. If some of you could help stick around and do that, we would be grateful. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. We're going to give Eric, as we, he and I leave here, uh, what we give to everyone who attends. It's a small piece of granite, and it says uh, simply, it's got the Faith and Life logo, it says, with thanks to Eric Metaxas for bringing faith to life, and we thank you very, very much. Wow. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh.